the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. If you would stand with me as we read God's Word. Matthew 18, beginning with verse 21. This is God's Word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Please lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Lord, we come needy asking for your blessing. Let the preaching and hearing of your word take effect this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I went off to college, I had the full intentions of having a good time. I went off and I took the classes I had to take, but I got the biggest meal plan. I stayed in the the best dorms that I could stay in. I made use of all the facilities that that were available on the campus. And I enjoyed those four years greatly. I enjoyed them so much that I decided I wanted to go on and do another six years of school (laughs) by going to seminary. And I remember the first semester that I landed in seminary. Uh, it, it It was just a few weeks in, and I got this letter in the mail from Citibank. Y'all see where this is going, right? Now, I thought it was strange because I had never gotten any mail from them. And I'd never even spoken to Citibank because my mom handled all of that. So I opened up the mail and I began to read the letter and it went something like this. Dear Russell, congratulations on completing your undergraduate degree. It is now time to start paying your student loan bill. And when I looked at the debt, that I had accumulated, I nearly fell out. 
All of those years, not once did I consider the debt that I was racking up every single solitary day that I was living on that campus. That piece of paper fell out of my hand in slow motion. I think I could hear a violin playing something sad as that paper hit the ground and the weight of that debt began to dawn on me. It had never occurred to me that all of those years were going to have to be paid for by me. I was living it up. The best dorms, I'm going to have to pay. The biggest meal plan, I'm going to have to pay. Stuff in my face like a, like a wild man every single solitary meal, I was going to have to pay for that. It had never occurred to me, though. And what made it so bad was not only was I living at the poverty line in terms of my wages at the time, but in the very moment that I read of my undergraduate debt, in that very moment, I was racking up more debt through seminary. I couldn't pay that debt, let alone the debt that I was accumulating and was going to accumulate for another six years. And they gave me that debt in lump sum form, and then they broke out what the monthly payments would be. In both numbers, it didn't matter how they cut that pie. It was far beyond my capacity to pay. I mean, it was, it was astronomical. And when the initial shock wore off, I picked that piece of paper back up and I continued reading. And then a ray of hope broke in when my eyes found this line in the letter. You may qualify for a debt forgiveness program backed by the government. Once I read the words debt forgiveness, my whole attitude changed. Once I read the words debt forgiveness, I began to imagine what it would be like to be free from this burden. Once I read the words debt forgiveness, I, I started to imagine all that I could do with the extra financial bandwidth if my debt were forgiven. Now, you may not have student loan debt. You may not have credit card debt. You may not have mortgage debt, but every single solitary person in here has accumulated sin debt. Scripture is God's letter that comes to us and lets us know that we have an astronomical debt that is far beyond our reach. We, every time we sin, we are going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. That's the bad news that Scripture tells us about ourselves. You may have never once given a thought to the fact that one day you're going to have to pay for the life that you're living. You may have never even considered it. You may not be aware of the debt, but the debt is still upon you. It's a staggering bill. And no matter how you slice that pie, you cannot pay it. Because you are living at the spiritual poverty line, and even as you learn about the debt in the very moment you learn of it, you're accumulating more debt. And you will continue to accumulate the debt. You will continue to live off of the credit card, so to speak, going deeper and deeper 
and deeper. It may have never occurred to you the weight of your sin debt to God, that you owe God for your sin. But this same letter in Scripture offers a ray of hope that breaks in because you may qualify for debt forgiveness, a program that is backed by the Lord's government, by his kingdom. And in our passage for today, Jesus himself helps us to imagine how our whole attitude can change if we have that debt forgiven. Jesus is helping us to reimagine what our lives could be like if we were free from this debt. Jesus wants us to understand the relational bandwidth that we could have if our debt were forgiven. This text, you may think, is all about forgiveness. And at some level, at a service level, it is. But the deeper significance of the passage is that it's all about relationships in God's kingdom. It's all about the way that God's people are to relate to one another in God's kingdom. Forgiveness is not the end in itself. Forgiveness is just the means to restored relationship. Because God hitches his reputation to how we live together in love. God hitches his reputation to how we, how we love one another and serve one another and forgive one another and repent to one another and uphold one another. That's how God hitches his reputation. Everyone will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. I like how my friend, Dr. Micah Edmondson, put it this past week at a conference. He said, the world may outthink us, but we must never let the world outlove us. That's a good word. And forgiveness is all in the service of expressing that love to which Jesus has called us. And so we're going to look at this text this morning. We're going to see forgiveness in God's kingdom. And we're going to approach this text through two points where we see the kingdom principle of forgiveness and the kingdom practice of forgiveness. The kingdom principle of forgiveness and the kingdom practice of forgiveness. Let's look at the first point, the kingdom principle of forgiveness. Now, Matthew 18, you may or may not know, is a pretty important passage in Scripture. It's a pretty important passage because it gives us a lot of insight about the way that relationships are to be navigated in the church. And the preceding section before our text right here, I just want to frame this up. Because immediately when you start thinking about forgiveness, you begin to wonder, does that forego justice? Does that mean that we're just excusing people? But in the preceding section, it's all about confronting a member of your community when they sin against you. So immediately, before Jesus even gets into this discourse, he's telling you, no, we don't excuse sin. We confront it. We call people to repentance. And there is a process for people who refuse to repent. And he begins to walk them through that process. And it seems that this conversation gives immediate rise to Peter's question. Okay, you confront someone who's in sin. They sin against you. And Peter begins to wonder, so how many times... Should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times? Peter understands that we are to be forgiving, but the question is, where's the line, Jesus? I mean, really, how long do I have to put up with a 
a brother or sister who sins against me. And here's the interesting thing. Peter thought he was being pretty generous. Because in rabbinic teaching at the time, uh, the, the standard practice was that you forgave up to three times for a particular offense. And after that, you were not obliged to forgive anymore. So Peter, by saying seven, he's rounding up to a whole number. And he says, you know, like this was a whole number in, in Jewish culture, okay? They, they rounded up seven was the perfect number, right, in Scripture. So he thinks he's being magnanimous. The rabbis say three. Peter says seven. Jesus says, I don't tell you seven. I tell you 77. And of course he means there is no limit. You are to go on forgiving. But there's something important that you need to realize about Jesus' choice of the number 77. Because there's another time where this number appears in Scripture and Jesus is making a direct flip, a direct uh, contrast here. If you go back into Genesis... And right after the story of Cain and Abel, you know, Cain kills Abel, murder. In between the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Noah and the flood, we get another mention. Cain kills Abel. And in order to stop the the spiraling into violence, the Lord says that anybody who takes vengeance on Cain, I will take vengeance upon sevenfold. But then if you go down through the line of Cain. The seventh down the line is a, is a man lay, named uh, Lamech, okay? Now Lamech starts to, to offer this boast to his wives. He was a murderer, but he composed a song in which he sang to his wives, and he says this. This is in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech is avenged 77-fold. This is the first instance in history of gangster rap, all right? He's like, how I could just kill a man? Because it's poetry, all right? And he says, if anybody takes vengeance upon me, 77-fold. So what you see, Jesus is taking... This this ultimate vengeance of an ancient man, and he's flipping it as the God-man into a a, a no-boundary principle of forgiveness. It's the exact contrast. Unlimited vengeance is the extreme to which Jesus' principle of unlimited forgiveness is the precise opposite. The revenge of the primitive man is transformed into the forgiveness of the God-man. And then immediately from his response to Peter, Jesus jumps into a story. And it's important. Just remember that Jesus' favorite mode of teaching was not what many people prefer. Sitting down with the systematic theology textbook. Jesus loved to give you a story that would continue to gnaw at you and grate you. The tension continued to... to conflict you and weigh upon you and call you. It's like there's no boundary when Jesus lays these stories on you. And Jesus didn't even feel the need to always interpret the stories for people. He would often say, he who has ears, let him hear. Wait a minute, Jesus. That's not expository preaching, Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not worried about 
I'm not worried about the expository preaching piece. My greatest concern is to get you to wrestle with your life before God and whether or not you are a member of the kingdom. So he lays this story. He lays this story out. He jumps straight into a story to illustrate the kingdom principle of forgiveness. Now, there's an emphasis on the extravagant character of forgiveness taken up in this parable that follows. And it places the disciples' forgiveness squarely upon the foundation of God's forgiveness of the disciple. Here's the kingdom principle. Jesus places the disciples' forgiveness of others squarely upon the foundation of God's forgiveness of the disciple. That's the principle. This is the kingdom principle of forgiveness. If you look at verses 24 through 25, Jesus begins to lay out the story of a man who has a debt that he owes to a king. 10,000 talents. Now here's the deal. You just got to appreciate this. In the Greek language, 10,000 is the largest number that you can create with the Greek language. It's hyperbolic. It's such a vast debt that you can't even wrap your mind around it. Like it, It's so extreme that it's more than all of the currency and circulation at the time. Scholars say there wasn't that money, there wasn't that much money in circulation at the time. It's an extraordinary debt. The largest number you could create. And he's trying to make a, a particularly graphic point. 10,000 could also be translated as beyond number. It's an unpayable debt. It's, it's practically incalculable. In verses 26 through 27, we see the desperation of the man. He has neither resources nor hope, but he begs for time and promises to pay everything back. But you have to understand, this is an impossibility. The man is making empty promises of his ability to pay the king back. He, he's well wishing. And the king essentially says this. You can't pay this back, but I will cancel the debt. As much as this man had made a promise to repay, he simply could not. And every listener would have heard the impossibility in his promises to the king. No matter his talk, he simply couldn't do it. Not in many lifetimes could he repay the king for this extraordinary debt that he owed. And that is the very point that Jesus is making. He's been forgiven an immeasurable debt. And against all expectation, the king freely forgives him on the basis of mercy. And we immediately see the point that Jesus is making to his disciples. This is what God is like to us. We could never repay what we owe. We could never even begin, not in 10,000 lifetimes, could we begin to repay the debt that we owe to the Lord. The man says, be patient with me and I will pay everything back. And it is pitifully untrue. It's pitifully untrue. It's as threadbare as our own excuses and promises. I will try harder. I will come to church. That will pay God back, but it won't. It won't. And that is what God has done for us. This act of the king. This is what God has done for us. He says, you can't pay me back, but I will forgive. I will forgive those who acknowledge 
their need and call out for mercy. Listen, our debts have been piling up for years. Every day, every hour, every minute adds to the debt that cannot be paid. And God says, I release you from the debt. I release you from the debt. And I want you to appreciate something. We tend to focus on the man and the debt from which he's released. But in order to do this, the king has to take the loss. The king has to take the loss. He couldn't write it off. He had to take the loss. The kingdom principle of forgiveness begins with God's debt forgiveness program, y'all. There's no fine print. There's no limits. And the only qualification you need is a confession of your need. And the king takes the loss. That's what Holy Week was all about. If you think that your debt was small, you need to revisit Holy Week. If your debt was small, it would not have taken the Son of God hung up on a cross to remove it. If ever you are tempted to think that you're not that bad, you need to look at the cost that was paid. The the cross tells you how bad it was. God isn't worried about your janky little interpretation of your sins. He's given you his divine interpretations of your sin. You are not sick. You are dead. This is what the debt is all about. You are buried under it. You can never emerge from it. No good deeds, no performance is going to impress God. It's not going to take away the debt. I can do a song and dance all day for Citibank. I can tell Citibank that I'm, I'm an upstanding citizen. I can tell Citibank I got four kids. I can pull out every excuse, but Citibank ain't interested in my excuses. You got to pay unless you appeal to the government for debt forgiveness. The invitation of the text is appeal to the kingdom, to the king himself for this debt forgiveness program that is backed by God's government because the king himself takes the loss to exhaust your debt. This, this is good news. I like how Augustine puts it. Y'all, Augustine, African church father, one of the major architects of Western theology, says this. He accepted what was not his due, and he gave us what was not our due. He says to his congregation, this is from a sermon of Augustine. This is what he says. I want you to be forgiving, for I've caught you begging for pardon. I want you to be forgiving because I've caught you begging for pardon. Forgive. Don't recoil. Because you will be the very person in need of seeking forgiveness before the sun goes down on you today. You're going to be that person. Whenever you're confronted with someone who needs your forgiveness, you are looking in the mirror. You're going to be that person before the sun goes down today. Needing forgiveness, needing pardon, needing mercy. And as we move on through the story, we're going to see the wicked inconsistency of claiming to be someone who has been pardoned from debt 
while all the while maintaining the debts of those who owe you. When people sin against you. I'm talking a word today from Jesus that all of us need to hear. If you think you're hot stuff, lighten people up on social media. You need to hear this. If you have nothing but a condescending word for those people, if you hold them in contempt in your heart, Jesus is giving you a warning. This is a warning. All of us. No one can duck right between the eyes. Everyone. We can't duck fast enough. Now look at verses 28 through 35. This is, this is something else. This is something else. This same man, freshly released from his debt, does the unthinkable. The ink hadn't even dried on the debt cancellation paperwork when he finds a fellow servant who owes him. He chokes him out and jails him. Now listen, Jesus is giving the story a mirror effect. The man, the man exhibits the same cry for mercy. He comes into debt. He offers the same cry for mercy. But the man who was met with mercy will not meet his debtor with mercy. The man who deserved to be thrown not just into jail, but under the jail for this extraordinary debt is willing to throw his fellow in debt for a, an immeasurably smaller debt. Our reaction as hearers of this story is surely to be what the reaction of everyone at the time would have been. Indignation. It's outrageous that the servant should behave like this. But notice the reason it seems so outrageous. The reason why it's so outrageous, this action of this servant, is because of the preceding mercy that was laid upon him. The extraordinary act of generosity by the king of the servant. Without that debt cancellation framing up his story, it would have been completely reasonable for him to go and collect this debt. But it's the context of mercy and grace in his life that makes his actions unthinkable. It's because his entire, his entire activity relative to his debtor was, was foreshadowed, prefigured by grace and mercy. Then it makes it so unconscionable. The king has changed the world of this servant. He has rewritten the ordinary rules of behavior, but the beneficiary of that new world behaves as if nothing had happened. He behaves as if the king had done nothing to take away his debt. He behaves as if the king has not done the most extraordinary thing to completely alter his existence. That's how he behaves. The servant consigned his debtor to the same fate that he escaped by mercy. Do you see the lesson? Do you see it? In Christ, God has torn up the pages of our debts. Our failure to forgive wrongs is absolutely outrageous. It's outrageous. To insist on our rights not to be generous, our right to feel hurt and resentful, our right to seek revenge, all that is to live as if the debt forgiveness never happened. Kingdom principle. 
We forgive because God has forgiven us to an unimaginable extent. Forgiving is not excusing. It's resisting the desire to hold their wrong against them. It's resisting the desire to hold their wrong against them. Forgiveness makes the effort to decouple that person from their sin against me. So that their identity is not wrapped up in their sin against me. But it's, it's, it's detached so that I can live in restored relationship with the one who has wronged me. Do you know how God sees you? He doesn't see you as that addict. He doesn't see you as that selfish sum of a gun who's always out for number one. He doesn't see you as that person who looks at the screen seeing things they, don't, they shouldn't be looking at in the middle of the night or in the secret moments. He doesn't see you as the person who lives such a hateful life against their neighbor. He doesn't see you as the person who uses their words to slander and abuse the other. He sees you in a completely different coupling in your union with Jesus. And he looks on you with love through Jesus. And that's the way we need to look at one another. We need to see one another, not as that person who did me dirty, but as that person who's united to Christ. And I need to aspire to aim, to strive, to see them beautified, perfect in the righteousness of Christ with all the hope of change that the resurrection holds out for them as well as me. That's how I need to look on them. I need new lenses. He forgives us so that we should practice forgiveness in our lives. That brings us to our second point. The kingdom practice of forgiveness. What Jesus teaches us in this parable is that unforgiveness is ethical heresy for the Christian. It is ethical heresy. It's something completely foreign to the Christian life. You can in no way be living anything remotely close to Christian if unforgiveness is a staid and steady way of life for you. If it's a commitment for you. We, we are more practiced in unforgiveness than in forgiveness. And that's why I'm talking about the kingdom practice of forgiveness. It takes practice. You have to work on it. Here's the deal. If we had a penny for every time we needed forgiveness, we'd be rich. And if we had a $100 bill for every time that we extended forgiveness, we'd be broke. And that is the great inconsistency of our lives. Verse 31, I want you to remember something. Remember how this wicked servant got busted. His fellow servants saw, verse 31, people are watching. We say we want other people to understand the grace and forgiveness of God, but one of the reasons why it seems so unbelievable to them is because they see so little forgiveness among us. They see us bickering. They see us fighting. They see us polarizing. They see us trying to get cheap shots to score political points. They see us being petty and ridiculous. And that's what makes the forgiveness of God so unbelievable because they draw the conclusion that our God is just like us. Unforgiving, petty, ready to, ready to take the jab at us whenever he has an opportunity. 
fault finding. They see vindictive revenge and retribution. They see statements from Christian leaders that say, I'm done with them. I got zero, zero tolerance for those people, especially the unteachable ones. Okay. Does that sound consistent with the way that God has dealt with you? Do you think that you've been teachable before God? No, you're a knucklehead. You're a hardhead. But God persists to work the lessons of love into your life. Now, do you think he calls you to less? This is a part of forgiveness. Yes, you persist in error, but I'm going to forbear with you because it's not about me and me hitting my limit. My forgiveness is not about me living a more healthy life. So much of the broader teaching on forgiveness is man-centered. You got to forgive because if you don't forgive, it's like you drinking poison and expecting the other to die. That's true. But that's not the the impetus for forgiveness. Our forgiveness is a God-centered thing. We forgive because we are interested in seeing the beauty of the gospel reflected in the world. We forgive because we are called to be his image bearers in the world and nothing reflects the image of this God like forgiveness. Like love, like forbearance and patience. Like, yeah, you wronged me, but what I extend to you is not hatred and bitterness and cynicism, but love. Forgiveness. I'm not counting sin against you. I'm not, I'm not diminishing the fact that you have sinned. Forgiveness is specifically Christian. It's not just an apology. Forgiveness requires me saying, I have sinned against you. I owe a debt to you. Will you have mercy on me? And the person forgiving saying, I forgive you. Stop saying it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay when people sin against us. But we have the choice. We have the freedom. We have the obligation now as God's people to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. In the context of repentance and humble confession. And how many times? You know, I've had it with all these people who don't understand the dynamics of race. I'm done with them. Boy, that is a sad thing in my soul when I see it from platform preachers who got the main stage, giving all kinds of other people permission to give up on the cross-cultural vision to which we are called as God's people. Jesus ain't giving you permission to give up. He's not giving you permission to detach yourself from the call to love those people who are frustrating you. You are no less frustrating to God. The people who verbally wound you, you have wounded God no less. Do you see how the gospel will never let you get away with a short shrift approach to the people who need your forgiveness? And listen, what about those who don't repent? What about those who don't repent? Think of forgiveness as a gift. You hold it out. They may not come for it, but in your soul, you hold that gift out. And if one day they come for it, it's theirs. That is the call. And does not God and Jesus Christ stand ready and willing holding out the gift if people would just simply come and call out for mercy? This leans against everything in us. I want to ask you a question. Does your way with people say to the world, 
I've been forgiven an astonishing debt. What would others conclude about God's way with people from your way with people? What would others conclude about God's character? It's one thing to want to forgive, but to struggle. It's another thing to take a hardened position of, I'm not going to forgive. I refuse. That's another thing. Listen, to practice. How do we practice this? I want to pastor you right now. I'm going to give you some things that you can work on, that you can take away about how to practice. First, stop nursing minor hurts, injuries, and grudges. Many of you are familiar with nursing. And you know what happens? With nursing, you keep nursing that child, and then all of a sudden they get big. And some of us have nursed our grudges and, 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 our, and our anger so much so that we no longer are nursing our grudges. We're feeding it steak. It's gotten so big. It's gotten out of control. It's huge. It's like a teenager now eating up everything in the house. Stop nursing your minor hurts and injuries and grudges. Remember Jesus' word over the unforgiving servant. Wicked servant. It is wickedness to claim to be a beneficiary of that debt forgiveness program and to refuse forgiveness horizontally. Next, stop confusing strength with weakness and weakness with strength. And what I mean is this. We think of forgiveness as weakness and we celebrate hardness in our culture. Toughness, the gritty one. The one who puts people in their place, who tells them like it is. We celebrate that in our culture. In other subcultures, we celebrate the one who's hard. Thugging. That's what we celebrate. And we confuse strength with weakness and weakness with strength. That, my friends, is true weakness. An inability to walk in forgiveness is a true weakness. But it is a true strength. To extend forgiveness to those, even the ones who would make a fool of us, even the ones who would try to heap shame upon us for the extension of our gift. That is true strength. How do I know? Because at the cross, Jesus did not say, Father, get even with them. You know what they did. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus does not say, Father, I think I'm going to go ahead and call on those 12 legions of angels now and smoke these jokers. No, he says, Father, forgive them. That was perhaps the strongest moment of Jesus at the cross. When he was dying for the very fools that were nailing him and piercing him and mocking him. That was true strength. That was, that was earth shattering strength. And when he had done that work of forgiveness, he could then cry out, it is finished. That's that's true strength. So stop confusing strength with weakness. We have to practice a painful mercy toward other people. Yes, forgiveness is painful to extend sometimes, but that's the kind of forgiveness to which we're called. Next, start at home. Start at home. Start with your roommates, your spouse, your children. Your children are gonna grow up with a grid of forgiveness directly correlative to your way. If you see unforgiveness in your children, then just go ahead and put your hand up like this. That's you. That's you. Go ahead. That's you. 
but we can teach our kids a new way. We can teach our kids a new way. We have to start a home liturgy, y'all. We have to start a home liturgy of confessing our sins to one another and to God and asking, not just apologizing, saying, I'm sorry. We have to say, will you forgive me for being short with you? Will you forgive me for being impatient with you? I need your forgiveness. And then for you, as a, as a signpost of the Lord's forgiveness, you say, yes, I forgive you of your sin. Not just, don't worry about it. It's all good. It's okay. No, that's not gospel forgiveness. God does not say it's okay. And the cross tells you it's not okay. But he does indeed declare forgiveness over his people. Declare it. Be a mouthpiece for the Lord in declaring forgiveness over those who sin against you. Next, start naming the tenderness of God toward you. Whenever someone sins against you, you know what it's like to be in that position. Whether through act of evil in your soul or ignorance, you know what it's like for another to have you dead to rights and then to release you. In the moment when you catch someone sinning against you, you should remember the moment when you realized that you were caught and released. Next, practice forgiveness, both as an event and a process. Forgiveness, forgiveness is not just a one-time thing, although there is an event where we initially declare it, that offense, deep ones can keep coming back. And we are called afresh to remember and lean into the declared forgiveness that we've spoken over someone. We have to practice it. It's a process too. It's going to take time for you to get your heart there. And remember, forgiveness doesn't remove dis disciplinary consequences for sin. It releases the punitive consequences for sin. That's an important distinction. Forgiveness does not release the disciplinary outcomes for a sin. It, re it relieves the punitive, the, 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 the soul-crushing judgment piece. When we forgive someone, it's an event. I forgive you. But that's not the end of the matter. Every time I remember the offense, I must continue to forgive. I will forgive you and I will continue to forgive you. And I will not act on my sinful desire for revenge. We forgive and we keep striving to forgive. Next, start confessing. Start confessing your sin. It, it, listen, here's the deal. It's impossible for those who are short on personal confession to be long on forgiveness. It's impossible. You cannot be a forgiving person unless you are a personal confessing person. Confession is the only thing that will keep you in touch with how often, how frequently, and how deeply you sin against the Lord. That's the only thing that will make your heart tender enough to forgive the other, no matter how grievous their sin is. Forgiveness is particularly essential for cross-cultural community. I, I don't even think I need to convince you of that. If we really want to be a cross-cultural community, then we need to be a forgiving community. If we want to be a forgiving community, we got to be a confessing community. I, I mean, there's a place for celebration. We believe in that. That's important. But sometimes when you come into worship, your sins are so heavy upon you that first you need to lean into confession before you can lean into the celebration. And don't be premature with it. You will only break free to true celebration once you hit confession, and when you hit confession, true celebration, then you hit, deep, you hit deep forgiveness. And then we are all the more equipped to be a cross-cultural community. 
Finally, here's my final word. Leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. In Romans 12, Paul says, do not repay evil for evil. Bless those who curse you. And remember that the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will repay. Now, either Jesus is the one who has received that vengeance for someone who is in Christ, or God will visit vengeance upon them. But your job is not to be the avenger. This ain't DC Marvel Comics. You are not the avenger. Do not try to play the part of the avenger. There's no freedom like knowing God will repay, either in Jesus in the cross or on that final day when he calls his servants to account. Remember, the goal is not forgiveness. The goal is relationship. So let's lean into God's vision for relationships in his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, for your forgiveness for us, for your long suffering and patience toward us. We pray, Lord, that each of us would leave here this morning knowing how deeply loved we are because of how great our forgiveness is. Lord, we, we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior, and that is our hope. And we pray that that hope, that truth, that commitment would overflow, that even right now many of us would feel our hearts melting and becoming tender towards someone who has sinned against us so deeply and hurt us and wounded us so badly, and that we would begin the long and challenging journey of forgiving. We pray, Lord, that we would, that we would demonstrate our forgiveness from your hands by the way we forgive others. We ask for your grace in this. In Jesus' name, amen.